Shalom, everyone. You know, I do a lot of teachings where I sit at home in my little recording studio and I talk to the glass eye. But when I do that, I imagine the faces of people I love, but it's so much better to see the faces of people I love in person. So it's just great to be here. So thank you, Tim, for inviting me to, uh, to uh, bring a teaching this morning. And um, so let's start with a word of prayer and we'll just dive right in. Our Father and King, we thank you so much for this holy Shabbat that you give us so faithfully each week. What a gift from you. Lord, to help us to appreciate and enjoy and to delight in your Shabbat in a way that gives you delight and joy as well. But as we come together to look into your word and to seek your face and to learn better how to live this redeemed life, I pray you'd speak to us. clear and bright and untainted to accomplish your purpose in every one of our lives. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, this um, teaching is about the apostle begins with light. Everything begins with light. And the reason I'm doing this teaching is because, as you know, we're all going through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're given a little window into what the early Messianic, that first century Messianic community invested their time in doing. It says, and they devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, fellowship. Three, the breaking of bread. And four, the prayers. Not prayer, the prayers, the liturgy praying the Psalms and praying the prayers we just prayed this morning. And the word for teaching here is the word didache, didache. You can say didache if you want. Uh, this is the noun form of the word for teaching. The verb is didasco, and between the two words, they occur over a hundred times in the apostolic scripture. So this is something that is talked about a lot through the scriptures. We'll look at a few examples of that as we go. But I don't think it's a mistake or an accident, coincidence, that the apostles' teaching is at the top of the list of the four things. Teaching is so extremely important in God's economy. You find it from Genesis all the way through Revelation, teaching, teaching, teaching. Because we will think and process information and make decisions and live our lives based on what we think. And what we think and believe is going to be based on the inputs we get. And unlike the animals that God created, he created them complete. He created the human being a little incomplete. And that's why God walked with Adam. not want them to be complete without him. He created us to be in fellowship with him. And to not be in fellowship with him, we do not know how to live. So he left some lines of code out of our programming. And those lines of code are found here. 
And if we don't have those additional lines of code, we do not know how to live like human beings. And so it's through teaching, the teaching of the word, that we now know how to live. And we live in a dark time where people don't know how to live. We live in a time, in fact, where they're starting to legalize theft in some cities. We live in a time where boys don't know how to be boys and girls don't know how to be girls. We live in a time when people don't know their right hand from their left. They, people don't know how to live, and the world is in darkness and confusion because they don't have teaching. Now, you might say, well, grant uh, fellowship and break the bread and prayer. That's all important. But without teaching, we don't know how to do the other three. We need each of these for the other three to function correctly. But without teaching, we don't know how to fellowship with one another in love. We don't know how to extend hospitality to one another. We certainly don't know how to pray. So teaching is number one. You know, there's a part of the shakarit service. We don't do it here, and it's not in our little prayer books. But an ancient part of the shakarit service is this. It says this, these are the things whose fruits we eat in this world, but study morning and evening, hospitality to strangers, visiting the sick, helping the needy bride, attending to the dead, devotion and prayer, and bringing peace between neighbors, between husband and wife. But the study of Torah is equal to them all. Now you'll notice that these other three things are listed in here. But the study of Torah, the understanding of Torah, the teaching of God's instruction is equal to them all. Because without that, we don't know how to do all the ones in the list. God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And if I don't have that lamp, I don't know how to walk because everything begins with light. Paul tells us that uh, if any man is a Messiah, he's a new creation. Well, what does that mean? Well, you go back to chapter 1 of Genesis. It tells us about the creation on day one. What did God project out? Light, because everything begins with light. Everything begins with light. Tradition says that Solomon is the one who arranged the psalms. He took all of his father David's psalms, and then there are other psalms by the sons of Korah, and there are some by Moses and different other authors. But then he arranged them, and there are 150 psalms. But what did Solomon put as psalm number one, the very first psalm to kick off this whole book of prayer and praise? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in, what? The Torah of Adonai, and on his Torah he meditates day and night. That's how Psalms begins. Yet I know some people call themselves believers, but they walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they stand in the way of sinners. 
And I know others, some who are even messianic, and they sit in the seat of the scoffer, and they make fun of people who don't see things just the way they do. And as uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the seat of the scoffer may be very lofty, but it's very near the gates of hell. And we need to be very careful because we must meditate on the Torah of Adonai day and night. And if we do, we make that our priority, then what happens? He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Maybe the master is thinking about Psalm 1 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Make your priority seeking his kingdom, the kingdom of light, and everything begins with light. And he says, I'll give all these other things. You, you meditate in the Torah day and night, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. You'll always have the nourishment. You'll always have the nourishment you need to prosper and to be strong and to live. Your leaves don't wither. But we live, as I said, in a time of great darkness. And not only is it dark in this age we live, people are also blind. And even though light's available, if you are blind, you can't see the light. Now, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Messiah gives us seven letters, which we say are to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And these seven letters do describe seven kinds of faith communities. They describe seven kinds of believers. One of these letters describes you better than the other six. But more importantly, these seven letters are ordered in such a way that they give us a panorama of what is called the church age, the last 2,000 years. The first letter really describes things right there at the beginning, right when Yeshua was here and after he left. And then the second letter tells us what happened after that, and then the third, the fourth, the fifth. And then the seventh letter, the letter to Laodicea, definitely describes the age, the time that we live in now. And this is part of what it says. Uh, it says that uh, you say, I'm rich, I'm increasing in goods, and I don't need anything. He says, we don't realize you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. And Yeshua then counsels them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me three things. Gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And three, salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. You know, being in darkness is one thing, but being a blind man in darkness is even worse. But what are these three things? I'll tell you what they are. The symbolism is found in other places, and this is what the, 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 the apostolic scriptures tell us. Faithfulness, Peter tells us, I'm sorry, gold, Peter tells us, is faithfulness. He says gold tried in the fire, but Peter says there in 1 Peter 1.7 that our faith is more valuable than gold tried in fire. We're to walk in faith. And did you notice that the streets... And the new Jerusalem are paved with what? Gold, because we walk in faith. That pure gold that's been tried in fire is a picture of our walk of faith. And God wants us to have faithfulness. 
And one of the things that has shocked me over the last several years, as the world has been shaken, is that people who I thought were faithful aren't. I've seen people fall away. I've seen people question their faith. I've seen people leave Yeshua altogether, and others just leave the fellowship. They just, they just don't care. But they think they're doing really well. Have you seen this? It just seems like people aren't faithful anymore. The second thing, he says, white garments. Well, Revelation tells us what these white garments are in chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. He says, and here the bride has made herself ready. She's clothed herself in white linen. And the white linen is the righteous deeds of the holy ones. The bride has clothed herself in righteous deeds. Without those righteous deeds, we're naked when we stand before God. Now, there's a righteousness of Messiah we're clothed in, but that's like the undergarment. I don't want to show up before God on Judgment Day in my underwear. I I don't want to show up anywhere in my underwear. But I want to have a garment woven, the best I can, of living a life of righteousness. And then the third thing, salve to anoint your eyes. The only thing I find in the Bible comes close to eye salve is when Yeshua healed the man who was born blind. He spit in the dirt, made mud, put the mud on the man's eyes. And then when he went and washed it off, he could see. Where did the mud come from? It came from Messiah's mouth. So the only eye salve I see in the scriptures is a picture of what comes from Messiah's mouth, his teachings. We must continue in his teachings so we understand how to apply the Torah and how to live out this life. So what the community the redeemed community, at least the community that thinks it's redeemed today, needs is faithfulness, righteous deeds, and to live according to Messiah's teachings. You know, I, I know what people think. They think, well, there's so much bad teaching out there. I'm, a, I'm afraid to trust teaching. Why do you think the enemy produces so much bad teaching? You don't counterfeit a $3 bill. You, account, you counterfeit 20s and 100s, Right? So there's bad teaching the enemy's putting out there because he's counterfeiting and trying to water down and distract from what is good teaching. There is good teaching out there. And I think Beth Takoon and Tim and the people in the home groups are producing good teaching because these are men who are faithful, who want what God wants, who want to pass on the truth that God has given us through his word. So... Yeshua asked the question, says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness on the earth? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. He doesn't answer that. That's a question he wants us to ask. Because I believe more strongly than I ever have that we are in the last days. And I know every generation in the last 2,000 years has thought that. But we have some signs and some proofs that we actually are. And one of those proofs is the rediscovery of the D-Decay. So, here's the question. Where do, they, they spent their time in the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? Now, we're given some hints in Scripture. And uh, first of all, Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. And are there any questions so far? 
I don't want this to be a sermon, but are there, are there questions so far or anything I've said? Okay. Yes, Neil. So you just referenced the question that I have. Yeah. Um, I've, I've done some studying on apocryphal writings. Mm-hmm. The Didache is typically not included in no. discussion of apocryphal writings. What is the history of the Didache? Ah, we're going to get, the question is, what is the history of the Didache? Because it's not usually listed among apocryphal writings. That's because it was lost for the last 2,000 years and just rediscovered about 100 years ago. We're going to get into the history of it in just a moment. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's another reason why it's not included as as well. All right, any other questions? All right, okay, we're going to keep going. So what did the apostles teach? Well, in Luke 24, 44 and 45, this is after the resurrection. Yeshua is speaking to the apostles, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Torah of Moses and the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is the first book of the Ketuvim, the writings, and sometimes the writings were called the Psalms. So here we have the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, or what is misnamed the Old Testament, but the scriptures, the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, these are the three parts, and this is what Yeshua refers to, these same three sections of the Hebrew scriptures. That everything written about me in the Hebrew scriptures must be fulfilled, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he says, this is what I, I taught you when I was with you. Then he opened their minds to see how the Hebrew scriptures spoke of Messiah. So this is part of what the apostles' teaching was. Teaching the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, and how they revealed the Messiah, and how Messiah lived them out. So you know there in Acts 2, this is what the people were continuing in, to learn the word of God, and how the light of Messiah shines through it, and how it speaks of Messiah and how Messiah embodied the Hebrew scriptures. And then Yeshua himself, before he ascended, he said, you know, I'm sending you out to make disciples of all nations, out to the whole world, teaching them, there's that word didasko, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, that doesn't mean teach them what I've commanded you to teach them. That's not what he's saying saying, teach them to do what I have commanded you to do. Teach them to live the way I've taught you to live. And all the commandments I am giving you, you pass on those commandments to them. You got it? And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, you know that the apostles not only taught the Tanakh, They taught every word that they heard Yeshua say. They passed on the words and teachings of Messiah. That was the apostles' teaching. And then in John 7, 16, we learn something about Yeshua's teaching. He says, my didache, my teaching, is not mine, but his who sent me. So through him. Every word Yeshua said came from God himself. 
And in 2 John 1, 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the didache of Messiah does not have God. Let that sink in. There are some churches that call themselves churches. They've gone ahead. They've moved on from the teaching of Messiah. So what does John say about them? They don't have God. You know, we had the ironic blessing just a moment ago, right? And in the second line of the blessing, uh, it says, make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And everything begins with what? Light. The word of God is light. Where does that light come from? God's face. We're commanded to seek God's face, the source of light. And that light shines to us through his words. You want to seek God's face? Then meditate on this day and night. You're not going to find it by leaving this and going somewhere else. It comes from here. Because everything begins with light. Whoever abides in the didache and the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's a package. You know, some people leave, <laughs> leave Yeshua to convert to Judaism. And then there are other people who leave Judaism all behind to become a Christian and join a church. All I can say is anyone who leaves Messiah to convert to Judaism never knew Messiah. And whoever leaves the practices of Judaism and the teachings of the Torah to become a Christian never knew the Torah. Because if you continue in the teachings that the apostles gave us, you have the Father and the Son, and it's embodied in the Torah and the teachings of Messiah, which go together like two halves of menorah. They shine the same light, but they shine it fully together. You get what I'm saying? I don't think I worded that all very well, so rearrange it in your mind to where it makes better sense, okay? In Romans 16, 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the decay that you have been taught. Avoid them. How do you deal with people who cause divisions? who create obstacles contrary to the teaching of the apostles of Messiah and of the Tanakh. How do you deal with them? You avoid them. Don't engage them. Invest your time in better ways. So, when the apostles were alive, as you're learning in Acts, you had this flood of Gentiles coming to faith in Yeshua. And in the early part of Acts, and even through the whole book of Acts, this messianic movement, messianic awakening, was considered to be a sect of Judaism. And the apostles were Jews. They never stopped being Jews. Paul wrote later, I think it was in Colossians, says, I am a Pharisee. Didn't say I was, I am. He never stopped being one. In fact, Yeshua, we're pretty sure, was a Pharisee as well. His teaching aligned with Pharisaical teaching. 
we tend to think if you're a Pharisee, you're a hypocrite. No, just a lot of the Pharisees were hypocrites. Yeshua was an exception. He was one who was absolutely perfect and sinless. All right? But as far as their theology, it was pretty spot on. But anyways, that's a distraction, isn't it? Now you're going to be thinking about that. And get, back, get the wheels back on the track. Um, so we, we find ourselves in the book of Acts, and all these Gentiles now coming in, and they don't know squat about anything. They were pagans, idol worshipers. I mean, they, they weren't raised in, in the Torah and then the, the festivals, the Moedim, and, and uh, the study of the prophets and the writings. They, they didn't know anything. So what do we do with them? So the apostles wrote a handbook. They wrote a handbook. And it was the handbook for about the first 300 years of the Messianic awakening as Gentiles were coming to faith in Yeshua. And they called this handbook the Didache, the teaching. Now, it was composed in the first century. Here's some facts and some history. It was composed in the first century by the apostles. It's only about 2,300 words long. It's not very long at all. And it was considered inspired scripture by many. So they would study the gospel stories, and when the gospels were written, they would study the gospels, but they would study the Didache that the apostles wrote, because this is a handbook about how to function as a healthy messianic community, how to live a messianic life, how to apply the teachings of Tanakh and Yeshua's teachings to your own personal life and faith community. It was quoted by many of the church fathers. So we found little excerpts of it quoted by all these different early church father writings. But, get this, the Didache fell out of use in the 4th century, about the time Constantine came to power. When Constantine made Christianity, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And he began to snuff out anything Jewish he could find. And then we found big church buildings, basilicas, cathedrals being built. We found professional priests to run the churches. And then we found all this other theology and changing and everything began to morph into something the apostles would never have even recognized. Let me read you a little bit about what happened to the DDK at this time. It says that the DDK was considered too archaic to be reconciled with contemporary practice. In other words, instead of answering why contemporary church practice did not reflect the instructions of the DDK, the church discarded the book as antiquated. The organizational structure of the church had moved far beyond the simple communities, read home churches, and concerns reflected in the document. And then something amazing happened in 1873. There was a a Greek Orthodox priest who was rummaging around in some old church building that had all these ancient Greek documents, and he found this bound book 
of some ancient writings, and then there was a complete copy of the DDK, the only one that's ever been found. So almost, almost 2,000 years later, 1,500 years later, finally, a copy of the DDK came to light. Everybody was thrilled. This news got out, and all the Bible scholars and and, and all the clergymen were so thrilled they found the DDK because they all knew about it because they'd seen quotes from it and other writings, but now we have a whole copy. They translated it all into English and other languages, and in 1883, it finally is published, and then nobody was so thrilled about it. The Catholics found that it wasn't Catholic enough. The Protestants saw that it wasn't Protestant enough. That's because Catholicism and Protestantism didn't exist in the first century. What existed were Jewish apostles trained by the Messiah to help these young Gentile believers mesh together into the Messianic community. And that's what the document's about. If you really want to delve into the DDK, there's a wonderful book that came out a few years ago called The Way of Life, The Rediscovered Teachings of the Twelve Jewish Apostles to the Gentiles. Wonderful book. So if you really want to dig into this, it's, uh, it has a, a great translation of the DDK and comments on every phrase. And if you are a Messianic, when you read the DDK, you're going to feel like you came home. It feels very familiar. But it's weird to see how some some denominations want to translate it. It, it, There are a lot of translations of it out on the Internet. But here's how you can tell right away if it's a good one. Go immediately to section 14 and read the first sentence. Now, in the DDK, what it says, gather together on the Lord's day to break bread. You know how the Catholic one reads? On Sundays, gather together to take the Eucharist. (laughs) The Lord's Day, by the way, is the Sabbath. Today is the Lord's Day. Here's an easy way to figure that out. Yeshua said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? So the Lord's Day is the Sabbath. Any questions? I'll repeat that in case you missed it. Yeshua said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, the Lord's day is Sabbath day. There we go. It's not Sunday. It's a Sabbath day. This is the Lord's day. All right. Glad we got that out of the way. So anyways, people were not very happy about the DDK. I remember... um, I discovered the DDK in the 1980s, and uh, there's a a gentleman at the church I was attending, and he was all excited about this, that question, so I thought, oh, wow, there's this ancient first century document that tells us how to do church. And I read it, and I was like, this doesn't make sense. Well, it makes tons of sense to me now. It makes all kinds of sense. But if you are under the... But the, the misguided notion that God's done with the Torah, the DDK, makes no sense at all to you. And you'll want to do what they did in the fourth century. It's antiquated, it's out of date, I don't have any use for it. But if you're part of Beth the Coon, 
then the DDK should be something that we all are reading. And home group leaders should, should be following and looking into. This should be a constant uh, document of discussion for all of us. Because it tells you how in these last days to live. Uh, you know, something interesting, too, is it was finally published in 1883. That was the same year that a city, the first city, was ever wired for electric lights. It's almost like when the modern age really kicked off and artificial lights coming into the world, God says, I need to send them the real light because we're coming into the Laodicean period where people are going to grow lukewarm. And what do you say about lukewarm people? Because you're neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And he says, they're going to need this light. You know, in Jeremiah 6.16, Jeremiah the prophet is telling the Jewish people, return to the ancient paths where the good way is, and you'll find rest to your souls. But you said, we will not. And I think God's making that appeal to believers, to Christians today. Return to the ancient paths where the good way is. You'll find rest to your souls. And many are still saying, we will not. But I'm looking at a bunch of people here says, we will. So let's just look at a few excerpts from the DDK. Any questions? Does that kind of answer your question? Do you have a, okay, any other questions before we look at some excerpts from the DDK? Yes? Oh, this is by Toby Janicki, and it was published by Vine of David. And I think there's a copy in our library here. And uh, yes, there is. So uh, great book. If you really want to look into it, it's worth getting. But honestly, print out what Tim sent out to you this week, and I think it's on our website. I love the formatting, Tim. So you'd think you were a graphic designer the way this looks, it's, uh, at which Tim is. But uh, it's just a few pages long, and it's very brief. But boy, is it pack a punch. So let's look at just a few excerpts, okay? So here we go. It opens with these words. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. That sums up the entire DDK. Yeah, I place before you life and death. Isn't that what it says in Deuteronomy? Choose life. There's not a third way, by the way. There's a way of life and a way of death. The way of life goes into the light. The way of death goes into darkness. There's no third way. You're on one of those. You're getting closer to the light, you're moving to the light, or you're moving to the darkness. There's no in-between. There's a great difference between the two. But you know one of the things I hear a lot today is inclusion. We have inclusion. We just need to mix all the light and dark together and just accept it all. No, there's no third way. What looks like a third way is still darkness and death. In section 4, verse 13, says, Do not in any way neglect the commandments of the Lord. You can see how that rubbed a lot of Protestants the wrong way. The commandments, those are done away with. But he's talking about keeping the Torah, obey the commandments of the Torah. 
But keep what you have received, neither adding nor taking away from anything. Which is a quote from Deuteronomy 12, 32, where God says, take the Torah, don't add to it, don't subtract from it. In section 5, verse 1, it says, the way of death, on the other hand, this has been describing the way of life, the way of death, on the other hand, is this which is evil and full of curses. Then it lists 22 things. I just didn't want to put them on the screen. But let me just read them to you since we have some time. Here's what it says about the way of death. The way of death is the way of those who persecute the good. Is that happening today? Hate the truth. You know... I heard some great commentary here a few weeks ago. The word truth is now seen as something that is used only by the conservative right. And if you use the word truth in conversation, you're considered to be someone who's too conservative. You're a religious nut. Because that's your truth, Right? There's no such thing as your truth. There's the truth, and then there's falsehood. Um, They love lies. In Psalm 2, it talks about the nations meditating on a lie. They do not understand the reward for righteousness. And most movies today show reward for wickedness, a reward for being clever enough to work around the law. They do not cleave to good or this is why we hire crooked lawyers and we we bribe crooked judges because we don't want righteous judgment. They do not watch for what is good but for what is evil. You know, I remember joining Netflix years ago and they had a lot of good movies on there and they had some, some trash. I just resubscribed, don't ask me why for one month and canceled it. And now it's almost all trash with a couple a sprinkling of good movies. Why? Well, they know what sells. And people do not watch for what is good, but for what is evil. They are strangers to meekness. You know, humility. Humility? Who wants to be humble? I'm the best. Self-esteem. That's what makes the world go around, right? To meekness and patience. I want it now. They love vanities, pursuing revenge, without pity for the needy and oppressed. That's the way of death, as the DDK describes it. They do not know their creator. Now get this. I I put this on the screen. They do not know the creator. They are murderers of children. And the DDK even refers to abortion and and the evils of abortion. They're destroyers of God's image. Read Sex Change. Think of what they now call body modification. I want to modify my body. Wait a minute, you're made in God's image. Why do you want to modify that? I mean, I could lose some weight. Okay, I can do that. But, but when you're tatting yourself all up and having implants and, and it looks like you fell face first into a tackle box and you got, you know, 
and, and then they want to change things. I, I mean, what are they doing? And the images they make themselves to are never more beautiful. They become more and more repulsive. They even Some people can get their eyeballs dyed so they're all black. What kind of mind does that? A mind that is pursuing darkness, a mind that's, that's uh, focused on death. Concerning food, and I love this, concerning food, do what you're able to do. Isn't that gracious? So you have these, the kosher laws and the Torah. And then the rabbis went and added on a bunch of stuff on top of that that's not in the Torah. But the apostles were addressing Gentiles living in, in cities all over the world. And they're saying, when it comes to food, you got to eat. Do the best you can. Do the best you can to keep the food laws. But don't beat each other up if you're doing your best. I know some Messianic believers, and God bless them, this is fine. And for some, it works real well. They won't eat a piece of meat unless it comes from a kosher butcher. And the kosher butcher will only serve meat that is slaughtered in a kosher slaughtering house. There is no kosher slaughtering house in the state of Ohio. It has to be shipped in from Michigan or other places. So it, right away, it becomes very expensive. And then the kosher butcher, it makes it even more expensive. Kosher meat, the only place you can get really rabbinic kosher meat is if we drive an hour up to Cleveland and then spend an arm and a leg for a chicken breast. <laughs> You know, it's not worth it. Arm and leg, chicken breast. I, I think I'll keep my arm and leg, right? I mean, you can't afford it. So what do you do? You just don't eat chicken anymore? You don't eat a piece of beef anymore? Can't have a hamburger anymore? The apostles say, do your best. I love that. They're so gracious. 7-4, uh, before immersion. Now, this is serious stuff. Immersion, remember, in Scripture, is always passing from one phase of life to another. So when you gave your life to the Lord, you're leaving behind your, your pagan idolatrous ways, you're going to follow Messiah, then that's an appropriate time to immerse. So it says before immersion, both the immerser and the one being immersed should fast. Plus any others who can. The one being immersed, In other words, they're saying what you are about to do is extremely serious. What you're about to do means that your past life is over. It is done. It's kaput. You're going to become a new creation. You're going to live in a completely different So you think hard about this. You pray. You fast. At least one day. Best to fast for two. And we're going to fast with you. That God will give you the courage to take this step to decide I'm going to live for my Redeemer, for my Messiah. Because this is a big deal. I've been asked several times over the last few months what I thought, what I think of, of children being baptized. Now, we're not talking about infant baptism. Of course, that's nonsense. But if children five, six, seven, eight years old being baptized. 
Now, you have to make up your minds on this, but here's my advice. This is the advice I've been giving. I'm against it. Unless you've got a really, really sinful seven-year-old <laughs> who's been leading a life of crime, degradation, and addiction, and immorality, and they finally repent. Okay. I got baptized when I was seven. I was raised in the Baptist church. No, Baptist is in the word baptism, right? Baptism is a big thing. Everybody else is getting baptized. I'm seven, so I say, I'm going to get baptized too. You know what change it made in my life? None. I went in dry, came up wet. That was the only difference. If anything, it decreased my faith in God. Because as a little kid, I'm thinking, okay, if I go do this thing, something's going to change. God's going to show up. And there was nothing. I was too young. They should not have been allowing that. Immersions for adults. And in Judaism, the first time a boy or a girl is immersed is when they have their bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, when they pass from childhood to adulthood. And it's really serious because up to that point, they say, your parents have been responsible for how you act. But from this point on, God's going to hold you responsible for how you act. This is a big deal. But once you have your bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, you're immersed, you, you are now an adult, and you have a voice in the community like the rest of the adults. We need to make immersion a big deal. Right? So that's my take on baptizing children. I think you're going to do your son or daughter a greater blessing if you say, you know what, this is a big deal. Why don't wait till you're older? When you're 12 or 13 years old, then that's when I want you to consider doing this because then we're going to treat you like an adult. This is something to look forward to and prepare for. Doesn't that make sense? So that's, that's my take on it. But it, in the DDK, it was a, how many times have I said big deal? It was a big deal. And uh, I think it should be a big deal to us as well. Now, this is interesting. This is one of the parts the, the Catholics and Protestants coincide with those of the hypocrites. For they fast on the second day of the week and on the fifth day of the week. That's Monday and Thursday, second and fifth days. And in Judaism to this day, Orthodox Jews fast on Tuesday, or Mondays and Thursdays. They still do. And in the Gospels, it refers to the hypocrites fasting two days a week. Now, the apostles, being Jewish, they're all for fasting two days a week. It's not a commandment. But it says, if you're going to have fast days during the week, don't do it on the days the hypocrites do. Let's change it. You should fast on the fourth day and on the preparation day. Ah, there's a good Jewish term. What's preparation day? It's Friday. Preparing for what? The Sabbath. But see, those in Protestantism, Catholicism, preparation day. What's preparation day? Sunday's the Sabbath. You, you, you get the idea? So 
the question is, is uh, the hypocrites, <laughs> the, uh, they would, they would uh, fast on the second and fifth day, so that would be Monday and Thursday. So the apostle said, let's shift it. Let's still fast. It's a great practice. It's not a commandment, but if you're going to fast, let's do it on these days. Let's do it on Wednesday and Friday, preparation day, in preparation for the Sabbath, which starts at sundown. So they shift Thursday to Friday, that's one day. But why did they shift Monday to Wednesday? Why did they skip over Tuesday? Again, the apostles were Jews. And Tuesdays are a double-blessed day. You know why? If you read in Genesis, the story of creation, on the second day, I'm sorry, on the third day, God says it is good two times. He did not say it is good on Monday, which explains a lot. He said, but he said it twice on Tuesday. He said it twice. It is good. It is good. So it's considered a double blessed day. And so it's traditional to have a wedding on a Tuesday, to have a celebration on a Tuesday. If you're going to do something special, do it on a Tuesday. It's a double blessed day. You're going to start a new business, start it on a Tuesday. It's double blessed. So what did the apostles do? We're going to skip Tuesday. You can fast on Wednesday. And if you did a lot of celebrating over eight on Tuesday, you need to fast on Wednesday, right? But you see what they did? You see the Jewish flavor of everything they're saying? In chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, this is something that we instituted at the Luton home just this week and last night for the first time. As I was preparing for this, we decided to include this in our Friday night, Erev Shabbat. Concerning the giving of thanks, give thanks this way. And they have the blessing over the cup. And now they would do the blessing, but they had these additional words. And then next, concerning the broken bread. Because you see, when Messiah said, do this in remembrance of me, it was a Passover Seder, right? The Passover comes once a year. It's a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. So on Friday nights, when the sun would go down, there would be the air of Shabbat meal. And they'd always have bread and wine, the cup first and then the bread. And they would say these words, and we always say these every Friday night, this is a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. So the Jews would have the big Seder once a year, but every Friday, they would have a, a mini Seder around the Sabbath table, and they would have the cup, and they would have the bread. Not realizing that what they're doing is pointing also to Messiah who was crucified on Passover. So every Friday night, this is what we do. Communion does not exist in the Bible. Communion came along with Protestantism as a response to the mass that came in Catholicism. But in the first century, the families gathered around the table and they had the wine and the bread, a memorial of Exodus from Egypt. They were thinking... This is a memorial of another Passover when Messiah died for our sins and set us free from slavery to sin. And he passed us from death to life. Everyone, if you call yourself a Messianic believer, you need to be welcoming the Sabbath. 
the Lord's day. And you should be having this blessing, having the cup and having the bread with family and friends. It's a part of our messianic faith. And it's part of the instructions of the apostles of the first century for the Gentile messianic community. So these are the words we add in. First, concerning the cup. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of your servant David, which you made known to us through your servant Yeshua. Yours is the glory forever. Next, concerning the bread. We thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through your servant Yeshua. Yours is the glory forever. Just as this broken bread was scattered over the hills, because at one time it was wheat, right? Out in the fields, it was all scattered. It was scattered over the the hills and was gathered together and became one. So let your assembly be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Yeshua the Messiah forever. So this is a permanent fixture in the Luton household now on Friday evenings as we celebrate the crucifixion of Messiah and the welcoming of the Sabbath and having our memorial of our exodus from sin and death. Okay? It's all right out of the DDK. The instructions for the Gentile church in the first century. And then here near the end of the DDK, it says, come together often. Come together often. There are no lone rangers in the faith community. You separate yourself from the community, you don't last long. You cut off a body part, if you don't graft it back in real quick, it'll never be part of your body again. Come together often, seeking the things that are good for your souls. A life of faith will not profit you if you are not made complete at the end of time. Throughout the D decay, you're going to see them taking the long view of having a focus on the end of time, the day of judgment, and the coming into the living. They kept their eye on what was ahead. And this is what Yeshua did, who, uh, you know, when he suffered on the cross, he said uh, that he, uh, he focused on the things to come. Um, how, how's it word? My mind just blanked out. Who for the joy set before him. Thank you. Uh, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He kept his eye on the joy set before him. So it's saying if you don't live this life of faith faithfully, it, you're not going to be complete at the end of time. It's a powerful document. And this belongs to us because we identify with the Jewish community, with the Torah, with the Sabbath. This is written to us. And I'm so glad that here in the end days, God brought it to light again. Because we need it more than ever. We need it. And God's calling his people back to the authentic faith. And he's resetting the world stage as it was in the first century. And he's calling believers back from all over. Come back to the Torah, come back to Messiah, come back 
to the ancient paths where the good way is. And I thank God that he's provided this docket for us. So I think, I titled this, you know, once a few years ago, but it means so much more to me today than it did just five or ten years ago. So much more. Any questions? Any questions at all? Yes, David. Just, let's just stick with the easy one. <laughs> just out of curiosity, did you replace the traditional uh, blessing over the wine and the bread no. with that one? Oh, no, good question. David asked, did we replace the traditional blessing with this one? No, we just add this in with it. Yeah. Yeah, there was no talk about replacing in the DDK. But. I, that's not a theological course. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That's really just a practical <laughs> Yes, course. right. Uh, um, the second one is, I don't know if it's a comment or a question, but you can comment on my comment, Okay. I guess. Um, and I don't mean to detract from the Didache on this question, but because I think it's an amazing, it has a lot of punch to it, knowing yeah. that it came from the apostles. On the other hand, I'm thinking of how God allowed this to not be, mm-hmm. how God allowed it to be hidden for a period of time, especially while the canon was being sent. And I'm, and I'm wondering what it was about it that made them not, you know, that made them reject it. And, and I'm thinking about the point you bring out from the eighth section there about fasting. You could easily see how someone would look at that and say, this is not saying if you fast, fast on these days. It didn't say it that way. It said, fast this way. Yes. And, and so my question is, I don't know if that's meant to be universal. My question is, is it, is it possible that they were seeing, those who were deciding what was canon, they were seeing that this is very specific halakha. Mm-hmm. This is full of halakha that, mm-hmm. um, unlike the rest of our canon, really, yeah. it's, and it's very specific to their time and their place and their beginning of this walk in this way. And I'm wondering if they just said, this is so specific, and this is so full of so many commandments, like fast on these two days. We don't want to make this universal for all people for all time, yeah. and so we are not putting it in the camp. Well, I could see why they might adjust that one passage, but why would they throw out the whole decay? The reason they threw it out is because one man, Constantine. Constantine. Until Constantine, all of the Caesars, the leaders of Rome, persecuted the messianic awakening, the, the, the faith movement, the way is what is called in the scriptures and in Acts. They persecuted it. Constantine comes along and realizes, okay, I can't beat this thing. So he fabricates a vision where he's getting ready to go to war and supposedly in this vision he sees a cross and a voice says, go and under the sign conquer. So he had all his soldiers put the cross on their shields. They went out, they won the battle. And after that, he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which is the worst thing that could ever have happened to the way. Because the moment it quit being persecuted, it became an official religion, and then it died. And we went right into the Dark Ages, and boy, were they dark. Because the way was a living way of life and light. But then they made church buildings, professional priests, nuns. 
They made it illegal to be kosher. They made it illegal to keep the Sabbath. They made it illegal to keep Passover or any of the Moedim. They made it illegal to circumcise your sons, to keep any of the things of the Torah. We are stripping away anything Jewish and just keeping the Jesus bits that we like. And then when translations came out, translations were tainted. And the translations were tainted in such a way that you find the word church in the New Testament was missing from the Old Testament. Even though the word is found more in the Hebrew scriptures, many times more than is found in the apostolic scriptures. They wanted this wall. Everything to the left of Matthew, just kind of put it aside. And they were going to distort everything from Matthew to Revelation to reflect what we want this to look like. And God allowed it to happen because God allows things to happen. And they decide to reject his word. You decide to reject his word, you can reject it. You decide to reject Messiah, you can reject him. You can do whatever you want. Just realize there's a judgment day coming, you have to give an account. So as we go into this very dark time, God saw a fit, I'm bringing this back. Because I know people who want to come back to me, want to come back to the authentic faith. So with all of the counterfeits out there, I want this to be there to help them practice the original, the genuine. And that, I know, has been my heart ever since Beth Kuhn started. I wanted authenticity. And I think that's what you all want to. Right? Yes, Robin. I think for all of us, we get realizations how... Yes. Compromised and lowered in the world and in our own life, it just has. Yeah. And when you were talking about how immersion or mikvah is such a big deal, I'm sitting here thinking about how a bride, when yes. she goes from being a single woman to being a married woman and a man, when he goes from being a single man to a husband, mm-hmm. they will go into mikvah if that's yes. what they, the life that they choose yeah. as far as God's standards. Imagine that. Imagine if we began to approach even marriage, and instead of going out and getting drunk and having a party for days before the big wedding, which is all you're thinking about, you go to mikvah, fasting. Imagine preparing hearts and weddings being about marriage of souls. I mean, even that would speak in our culture would change everything. Oh, it would change everything. It would change everything. Yeah. Well, I think we live in a time when we don't take life seriously. And as a result, we don't take death seriously either. And, uh, but the mikvah, which is a picture of dying to self in Judaism, is called a born-again experience. You're being born again. You're saying no, and you're dying to the, what's before, what's behind, and you're saying yes, and coming alive. So yes, when a man gets married, when a woman gets married, they would... Fast, each one would go to the mikvah because they're entering a new phase of life. And uh, boy, yeah, if we took life seriously like that, there'd be a lot more joy in life. Yeah. Well, I know we've gone over time. I don't feel good unless I've gone over time. But uh, um, can we just, any more questions, we can talk about it more at Oneg, okay? So let's have a word of prayer and uh, we'll close. Our Father and King, thank you so much that you have preserved truth for us through your word. 
And Lord, also in these end days through this important inspired writing from the first century, written by your apostles, that encapsulates your idea for what church should really look like. So Lord, I just pray you'd make us more the people you want us to be. And Lord, may we value teaching, your teaching, sound teaching, which always comes from your light and leads us back to your light. Because Lord, help us to walk in the light as Messiah is in the light. And we can have fellowship one with the other. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.